We're looking at the next two stanzas, the 11th and 12th letters, beginning in verse 81. I will go ahead and read both of those stanzas, uh, verse 81 through verse 96, and then we'll get into the teaching. The next letter is Chaf, um, and this is what this particular stanza says. My soul faints for your salvation, but I hope in your word. My eyes fail from searching your word, saying, when will you comfort me? For I have, come, I, I have become like a wineskin in smoke, yet I do not forget your statutes. How many are the days of your servant? When will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? The proud have dug pits for me, which is not according to your law. All your commandments are faithful. They persecute me wrongfully. Help me. They almost made an end of me on the earth, but I did not forsake your precepts. Revive me according to your loving kindness so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. The next stanza which is entitled with the letter Lamed. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You establish the earth, and it abides. They continue this day according to your ordinances, for all are your servants. Unless your law had been my delight, I would then have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked wait for me to destroy me, but I will consider your testimonies. I have seen the consummation of all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. And Father, we pray that you'd speak to our hearts as we look at this portion of this psalm. Pour out your Spirit upon us, Lord. Might he lead us into your truth. Might he bring to mind all things, Lord Jesus, that you have said to us. And might he give us understanding. Might he open up the eyes of our hearts to understand and to know how to apply these truths to our lives in all that we do, all that we say, even all that we think. And so, God, have your way in us, we pray, and we do ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys may be seated. As we continue here in this 119th Psalm, this Psalm which highlights the excellencies the blessings of God's word. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 81 to 88 and then moving on 89 through 96. This next stanza begins with verse 81. My soul faints for your salvation, but I hope in your word. My eyes fail from searching your word, saying, when will you comfort me? In these first two verses of this stanza, we, we see the psalmist, and as we've shared before, it, we, we believe it is likely David, but we can't be sure of that, but we are reading it as from, uh, as from David. But in these two verses, he, he cries out about his own uh, weakness that has come upon him because in the context of this uh, uh, passage, this this. Uh, stanza, we see that he's uh, crying out to help or for help from the Lord because of the persecutions that are coming upon him. And because of those persecutions, we see he's describing himself as one whose soul is fainting for God's salvation, for your salvation, it, it, it speaks of. But I hope in your word, my eyes fail. So his soul is fainting and his eyes are failing from searching God's word. Now, 
there in that 82nd verse, when it speaks of my eyes failing from searching your word, some translations use the, uh, translate that as searching your promise. Uh, and, and we'll get to that in just a moment. Soul fainting, eyes failing. Both are weakened. Both are without strength because of this persecution, as I mentioned. Now, the word salvation here is not referring to the salvation of the soul. Uh, this is written from the perspective of one who has placed his faith in God, one who is following after, after him, following hard after the Lord. And we should not apply it in that sense, but in the sense of uh, saving us. I mean, I mean we, all, we, we did read that uh, he use, uses the word uh, help me there in verse 86. It's the idea of saving in that sense, helping out of a bad situation, delivering him from trouble. That sense of salvation, that, that's what the writer is writing of. And, he, and we see that he commits himself and proclaims to have hope in God's word. My soul faints for your salvation, but note the, trans, the, 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 uh, um, the contrast here. But I hope in your word. Yes, my soul is fainting, but my hope is in your word. You know, um, this speaks, even as David writes, but I hope, with his contrast, there he is speaking of the faithfulness of God. He is trusting God's word. He's placed his hope in God's word. And, and just whether it's the New Testament or the Old Testament, both the Hebrew in the Old Testament, the Greek in the New, this word hope speaks of a confident expectation based on what God has said, based on the promises that he's made. So we confidently expect certain things that he said are going to take place for us or in our lives. And that's exactly what David is writing about. In Lamentations, Jeremiah the prophet writes these words in, in looking at faithfulness. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I hope in him. You see, the promises of God are only good because it is God who made the promises. The promise that anyone makes are only as good as the faithfulness of the person who makes the promise. And, and even a, per, a person with the with the most honorable intent in making a promise sometimes is unable to keep it simply because of the inability to do so, right? Could come from a very faithful heart, but it could wind up being something that cannot be accomplished by that person because, I mean, let's face it, we all have limitations, but there's one who doesn't have any. That's God himself, the one who is infinite. He's able to do anything. And so any promise he makes, any word he gives about the future, our future, the future of the church, whatever it may be, it is going to take place. So when he tells me that I'm going to spend eternity with him based on what Jesus Christ has done for me on that cross, removing my sin giving him, me his, his robe of righteousness. And the reality that as he makes that promise, I know that it's good if I believe it, placing my faith in it, I know what's going to happen. It's not, it's not just a, 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 well, I hope so kind of a hope. It is a, I confidently expect this. I know this is going to happen because God said it would. Later on, we're going to be seeing that, that uh, in, in the first verse of the next stanza, that God's word is settled in heaven. He said it. So it's going to happen. End of story. But not end of life. Because we're going to live forever with him. But that, that's the basis, though, 
uh, for this. His hope is, is completely reliant on the faithfulness of God to keep His word. Paul wrote to the Corinthians these words in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. Beloved, let none of us give way to despair. No doubt Satan will tell us that it is humble to despair, but it is not so. The pride of despair is truly terrible. I believe that when a man altogether doubts the power of God to save him and gives himself up to sin because he thinks he cannot be saved, so far from there being any humility in it, it is the prouder action that depraved flesh and blood can perform. Man, how darest thou say that there is no hope for thee? How dare you? In a very real sense, I think we can say that to one another. You know, if if any of us have a a time of despair in life, a time in which we've lost hope, as believers in Jesus Christ. Now, I, I think people who don't know the Lord have every reason to despair. We who know him have no reason to despair. That make sense to you? So in a very real sense, we can say, you're following after Jesus. You belong to him. You know his word. How dare you lose hope? You know what I mean? I mean, I, I think that's a very real thing. I, I like that. I, I like what, what, Spurgeon, uh, what Spurgeon wrote there. I mentioned that the word for um, word in verse 22 is different from the word in verse 81. The, the, the word that's the Hebrew word translated as word in verse 81 speaks about the message, the very, the very words of God coming from him. But the word word in verse 82 is the word that can be translated as promise. They're, they're different Hebrew words. And obviously the promise of God is a part of his word, but the verse, in verse 81 it speaks of his word altogether. But David had received the promise from God for his help. But as we read here in this, uh, in this stanza, he had not yet received that help. So he's crying out for help. When, are you, when, are, when am I going to find your, that, that comfort, Lord, from you? He knew the promise. He knew God was with him. He knew God was for him. He promised him deliverance. But Lord, I don't see it yet. And so, so there, there's this idea of not so much a despair, but there, there's a kind of a, a painful longing for the the um, fruit of that promise to come. Hasn't happened yet. You know, guys, that's a difficult place to be. Knowing that God had promised you something, and yet it's not fulfilled yet. To know God's ability, to know that he can do anything, you're praying to him. He's not done it. I know that over the last several years in my experience with my precious wife getting, getting ill and then, of course, uh, going home to be with the Lord, I'm so glad she's with him. You know, um, I have gotten over the fact that she's a lot better off with him than with me. I'm, I'm a lot worse off than I was before, but she's better off than she was before, right? I mean, that's, that's, let's, let's face it. But, you know, knowing that God can heal, knowing that he does heal, knowing that nothing is impossible for him, even, even this neurological disease that she had, you know, I, I prayed, I prayed and prayed and prayed. Knowing what he could do, and yet not knowing what he was going to do. That's hard. That's hard. Uh, to know him in his character, his nature, his faithfulness, his goodness, his mercy, his grace, his, his love for us. 
the reality that he, that he has our best interest in mind. But not knowing what he's going to do, knowing in the, in the word that, I mean, Paul the Apostle didn't have his prayer answered to remove that thorn from his flesh, but God did tell him, my grace is sufficient for you. So I knew that God was with me. I knew that his grace was sufficient, but I wanted him to pour out his grace in the form of healing in my wife. That's what I wanted. And obviously that never came in this world, but she's freed from that, certainly. And for that, I praise him. But there were times, guys, that I was wondering if, you know, um, as the Lord didn't heal her, and I began to wonder if he was going to, and then as I was wondering that, I was wondering if I had lost faith, you know, and, and then I would, well, no, I know what you can do, Lord, I, you know, I mean, just back and forth, you know, I, I mean, this debate that I have in my own mind about who God is, what he's going to do, I don't know what he's going to do, but I know what he can do, and I'm praying that he'll do it, I know that he loves me, I think he will do it, but he hasn't done it, I don't know if he'll do it, you know, I mean, that whole thing, going back and forth in my mind, you know, and you guys know what I, I see head shaking, yes, you know, you, you've been there, you've been there. That's the nature of living in this world, really. It really is in this place where there are these afflictions and the heartache and the pain and the sorrow that go along with them. But God always is faithful. You know, I have to be honest, it's like he never promised me that he was going to heal her. I thought he was. I thought that he was giving signs early on that he was going to do that, but it was my interpretation of it. I think what the Lord was doing is just simply saying, I'm with you. I've got you in those things. And he certainly was, always has been, and continues to be. That can be a tough place. Verse, four, uh, verse, verse 83 for I have become like a wineskin in smoke, yet I do not forget your statutes. And verse 84 too, also, how many are the days of your servant? When will you ex execute judgment on those who persecute me? A, a, a wineskin in smoke. Basically, um, one writer says this, useless, shriveled, and unattractive because of being blackened with soot. That's, that, that's the idea of a wineskin in smoke. just can't be used anymore. If it's in smoke, that means it was in fire or close enough to have the smoke, close enough to feel the heat, close enough to dry up and, and be useless. And, and so the writer was feeling pretty useless right here, spiritually dry. I think all of us have at times been in that spiritually dry place. You know, just going through the motions. Doing the, doing the if, if you're doing devotions, you know, just reading it and then going on your merry way for the rest of the day, not really considering what you read, you know. We, we can be that way. We, we can go through those times. But here David is saying, you know, I am spiritually dry. I, I'm like a, a smoked wineskin, useless. Yet, yet I do not forget your statutes. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 10 about taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, right? And I think that's an important verse because we can experience these, this sense of uselessness. But you know what? There is no such thing really as a useless Christian. Because if indeed you are in Christ, that means you've got his spirit within you. That makes you not useless but powerful. We have to come against that. I mean, I mentioned a little while ago about me having debates with myself, within myself. And, and, and we all kind of go through that, but we have to. 
but wait a minute. I might feel like this, but wait a minute. What does God's word say? Who is God? Is he really inside of me? Is his word really alive and powerful, living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword? Is that what it, I mean, is that what we're dealing with here? And so we have to just battle our feelings with truth so that our feelings don't get the worst of or the, so that the, our feelings don't get the best of us. And, and if that takes place, then the worst of us is going to come out, right? But we have to be very careful about that. Um, one writer, John Trapp, um, quoted a martyr of the Christian faith. We don't know who this martyr was, or I should say is. If this person is indeed a Christian martyr, he's up there with the Lord right now, so he, he still is. But this is what he said. No trouble must pull us from the love of the truth. You may pull my tongue out of my head, but not my faith out of my heart. Don't you love that? I do. I love that. I mean, nothing. And this is what we see here in this, in this stanza. The, the, the writer is just committed to stay in God's word, not forgetting God's word, not forsaking God's word, no matter what takes place. And as this uh, uh, martyr uh, spoke, you know, you can pull my tongue right out of my head, but you know what? You cannot touch my heart. You cannot pull my faith from my heart. You know, and, and I think that's a truth that will do, do us all well to hang on to, to hang on to. Verse 84 here, how many are the days of your servant? When will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? Well, that, that is one of the few verses in this entire psalm that doesn't specifically mention God's word. Yet we do see David um, mentioning the idea of judgment. He asks for judgment on his persecutors. And judgment um, is a, a one, one of those words that actually is used to uh, in, in place of God's word, his judgments and, 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 his, and his laws, his commandments, and, and, and so forth. But it's not mentioned in that particular sense, when will you execute judgment, but it comes from his truth, certainly. Going on to verse 85. We're going to look at verses 85 through verse 87 now. The proud have dug pits for me, which is not according to your law. All your commandments are faithful. All your... Uh, they, they persecute me wrongfully. Help me. They almost made an end of me on earth, but I did not forsake your precepts. Um, they, they dug pits for me. Uh, it, it's, it's kind of another way to say that I, I was hunted like a wild animal. Hunted like a wild animal. One writer says this, the manner of taking wild beasts was by digging pits and covering them over with turf, upon which, when the beast trod, he fell into the pit and was there confined and taken. And, and that, of course, would be illegal according to the Mosaic law in, in, Le, in Le, Leviticus uh, to do something like that against a man because it's, it's like he's treated like an animal, regardless of how, um, what kind of a criminal he may be, what kind of crime he may have committed, uh, He's still made in the image of God. So we need to take care in that regard. Verse 86, we see that he mentions that all, all of God's commandments are faithful. They persecute me wrong, wrongfully, help me. Every commandment is faithful. But these who are persecuting me are doing so wrongfully. They're not following your commands when they're doing that. I'm following your commands. I see your commands as, 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 as faithful, and I, I want to follow after them. Yet, there are people around me who, don't, who, who give no heed to your word. And so, I find myself in danger being persecuted. In fact, they almost, verse 87, they almost made an end of me on earth. It's, again, another way of saying that 
you know, they were almost successful in, in their desire to destroy me. But there's a key word there, almost. You know, they tried. They, they've, they've catched their plans, and they tried to carry them through, but none of them have worked. Not that I haven't suffered, I have. Not that I haven't been hurt, I have. But, Lord, you have protected me. And even then, as he cried out, help me, uh, earlier, they almost made an end to me, but I did not, again, I did not forsake your precepts. And again, no matter what they do, I'm not going to forsake your word. I'm not going to forget your word. Nothing is going to keep me from your word. As we're there, let me, let me pose a question to you guys. Does that describe where you're at? Have you made that kind of a commitment to remain in God's word no matter what? Regardless of the circumstances of life? Regardless of the busyness of the day? Re regardless of, uh, of where you are pulled perhaps pulled away from the kind of time that would allow you to do so? Are you going to do it anyway? Are you going to not forsake God's word? God's word is the only thing that is going to remain in the end. We'll be talking about that in just a few minutes. Verse 88, Revive me according to your, uh, to your loving kindness so that... I may keep the testimony of your mouth. Revive me according to your loving kindness. Now, back in verse 25, and in a few other verses also in this psalm, David cries out, revive me according to your word. Um, here in verse 88, of course, it's according to your loving kindness. And in a few other verses, this, this uh, uh, phrase is being used. Verse 107, says, revive me according to your word. Verse 149, revive me according to your justice. Verse 154, revive me according to your word. Uh, verse 156, revive me according to your judgments. And verse 159, revive me according to your loving kindness again. So according to his judgments, according to God's justice, according to God's word, or according to God's loving kindness, revive me. Here, specifically, he writes, revive me according to your loving kindness. And what he's saying is only by your loving kindness, which, by the way, the Hebrew translated loving kindness here is the same word that is translated all through the Old Testament as mercy. It's only according to your mercy that I can be revived, that I can re receive new life from you. Crying out to be revived speaks of being not alive. The spiritual dryness and no life in me, right? That, that, that's where he's coming from. Revive me according to your loving kindness. And this is the reason, we see in verse 88, the last, the, the last uh, line here, so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. The reason, the purpose for me receiving life is that I may keep the word of God. So that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. Revival isn't just so that we can feel alive. Revival isn't just so that we can feel good. Revival isn't so that we can feel energized. Revival, whether it's revival of a culture, revival within the church, revival of a particular church, or personal revival. God gives us revival. He revives us. He gives us life so that we can bring honor to Him as we Obey his word. That's why we would be revived. Okay, let's go on to the next stanza. Lamed. Verse 89. 
through verse 91. This is a, these are great three verses right here. 89, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You establish the earth and it abides. They continue this day according to your ordinances, for all are your servants. We see here the, the power of God's word and the reality of the permanence of God's word. Again, verse 89, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. It is settled in heaven because God is the one who spoke it. And, and the idea here is, of course, if it's settled in heaven, of course it's settled on earth. I wish that were true. But at the very least, for we who follow after him, it's settled in heaven, therefore it's settled in my heart. Yeah, I've, I've mentioned to you in times past about this bumper sticker that I used to see on cars that, that, that said, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And I'm thinking, oh, wait a minute. You know, it's like if you want to get out of the car and go up and knock on the window, excuse me, excuse me, I have a question. Who do you think you are? You know, I mean, who is it? that gives approval to God's word to make it true. No, it's not settled until I believe it. It's not settled until I agree with it. I, no. God said it. He spoke it. That settles it. No opinion of any man matters whatsoever. And I hope none, none of us ever come across to anyone else with that idea that, you know, I, I just believe God's word, you know, it, it's settled in my heart. Well, but, yeah, we, we need to do that, but never that because I agree with him that makes it right. No. Because he said it that makes it right. Because he said it, I believe it. Now, just because I believe it, that doesn't settle it. It doesn't settle anything. It just means that believing it, I'm going to receive the benefits of it. That's all. But it is settled in heaven because God spoke it. I mean, let's never believe that God's word is going to be settled anywhere else. Not at Harvard. Not at Oxford. Not at the UN. Definitely not in Washington, D.C. But not even in Jerusalem. It's already settled. God spoke it. Amen? So let's allow that to sink into our hearts. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. They're settled in heaven. A few weeks ago in 1 Peter chapter 1, we looked at these verses, verses 23 to 25. Peter writes, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. The word of the Lord endures forever. Spurgeon wrote this, after tossing about on a sea of trouble, the psalmist here leaps to shore and stands upon a rock. Jehovah's word is not fickle nor uncertain. It is settled, determined, fixed, sure, immovable. Man's teachings change so often that there is never time for them to be settled. But the Lord's word is from of old the same and will remain unchanged eternally. God's word stands forever. In verse 90, your faithfulness endures to all generations. So not only is God's word settled, but God's faithfulness is proclaimed to endure to all generations. It is going to remain. Now, we, we talked about God's faithfulness already in the last stanza. 
But we're, we're reminded in 2 Timothy 2, verse 13, that God has to be faithful. That verse says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Which just simply means God cannot be anything but what he is. He cannot ever be anything than what he always has been. He just can't. You know, um, if anybody ever asks you, is there anything that God can't do? Yeah, there's, there's plenty. For example, he can't change. He can't be unfaithful. He can't lie. He can't be unloving, right? I mean, these kinds of things are things that he can't, that he can't do or can't be. And, and you know, I, I think that, that that might be a good way to respond. Yeah. After you slap the person, <laughs> that's a dumb question. But then you can speak to him a little bit. You think I'm kidding, don't you? No, I, I am kidding, I'm kidding. Um, God established the earth. You established the earth and it abides. I, I mean, they're, they're, they're right there. There's a, an, an example that, that David's giving. He established the earth, and look, it's still here. The thousands of years that it's been in existence, it's still here. They continue this day according to your ordinances, for all are your servants. So uh, the psalmist writing, uh, David writing, uh, speaking to the Lord, of course, the fact that all that he established on earth continue to this very day, according to the laws that he made. The law of gravity and the second law of thermodynamics and whatever law you might want to speak of, they still apply. All exists the way that God created it, and all of God's laws apply. They are all your servants. It's an interesting thing about nature, about the created universe, and of course, uh, our um, solar system is a part of that. The earth is a part of that. You know, it all continues exactly the way God had established it to continue. You know, and we know that according to, by reading the scripture, that there's going to be coming a day that, that it's all going to be destroyed. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. It's all going to burn. It's all going to evaporate at some point in time. You know, and, and some people uh, uh, um, just try to kind of surmise on how that could be. I mean, is it because there's going to be such a, a heavy nuclear warfare that the earth is just going to be burned to a crisp? I don't know. I guess that's one thing that could happen. You know, if World War III happens and everybody who has, a, has nuclear uh, armament and... and uh, by the way, Iran is headed in that direction. They're, they're nearly there now, um, which means some of their... I mean, th that's a scary thought, but that, that's coming. That's coming. Point being, all is going to be destroyed at some point in time, but until God causes that, then all is going to function the way he created it to do so. So, just an example of his faithfulness. And by the way, this morning, did you notice that the sun had risen once again? That's just a great example of God's faithfulness, isn't it? And tomorrow morning, the sun will rise again. And the day after that, and the day after that, the day after that, we could be here the rest of the night saying that, but that's, that's the case. And I know that, and, and we can't say, well, unless the Lord just puts a stop to it. Well, the rapture hasn't happened yet. So we got at least seven years. No, I take that back. We got at least a thousand and seven years of the sun rising every single day. Until that, and, uh, until that time, that's when we're going to have a, see a new heaven and a new earth. So we're at least a thousand and seven years away. And so that means somewhere around a half a million sunrises 
will take place. I have no idea how far away I am. I hope I'm fairly close. I don't know. But you guys get the point. Verse 92. Unless your law had been my delight, I would then have perished in my affliction. In verse 93, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. Here we see in these two verses the power of God's word to give life and the power of God's word to sustain us. You know, I'll, I'll tell you what, I, I, I look at this 92nd verse, and you know, guys, I kind of feel like that's a, that defines me over the last few years. The affliction that I've gone through, I would not have survived apart from the truth of God's word. That's true with you guys, uh, true with you guys too. I mean, as any of us go through affliction, any hardship, any difficulty, any sorrow, you know, we, we run to God's word and we find his help, we find his comfort, we find his peace, we find his truth, we find him, we find him. You know, and I've, I've mentioned this before, but I think it's important for us to, 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 to um, keep this in our minds because when we come to a time of suffering, we need to understand this, and also we need to understand it for people around us who are going through some suffering. Excuse me a second. <coughs> Sorry about that. But we as believers, we go through experiences, and as we go through them, we will say that, you know, going through this just caused me to really go, grow in the Lord. And I would say this to that. That's not really true. Because you and I may go through something, and at the end of it all, we've grown closer to the Lord and become more like Him. Somebody else goes through the same thing and is destroyed by it. It's not the circumstance, it's not the event, it's not the affliction itself that draws us closer to the Lord. It is because when we're afflicted, we cry out to Jesus and he's there for us. We find him as we cry out and he's the one that causes us to grow. And I believe very strongly that people who suffer the most... Christians who go through the most suffering are among the most blessed people on the face of this planet because they've had more cause, more reason, more, more impetus to, to cry out to God and found him, found his grace. So those who suffer more crying out to God each time receive more of God's grace than people who don't suffer. That makes sense? And because we find more of his grace, that means we are more blessed than others who don't suffer. I think that's a fascinating thing to consider. You know, it might cause you to say, Lord, bring on the suffering so I can so I can have more of you. Almost. Notice I said almost. But you know, I mean, I think it's true though. I think it's true. In our in our in the times of our deepest affliction, we cry out to him, we find him and we receive the grace that is necessary for us at that time. And so, this idea of um, the law causing us to not perish in affliction, yeah, clinging to God's truth, clinging to his word, clinging to him, definitely that takes place. And then verse 93, I'll never forget your precepts, for by them you've given me life. Again, it's by the word of God that brings us life. Uh, Martin Luther said this, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. The Bible is not antique or modern. It is eternal. I like that. Going on, last few verses here. 
Verse 94, I am yours, save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked wait for me to destroy me, but I will consider your testimonies. I've seen the consummation of all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. I belong to you, Lord. Save me. I'm yours. You're my shepherd. I'm your sheep. Save me. You're my father. I'm your child. Save me. Deliver me. You know, based on our relationship with him, we can cry out to him. Um, and this speaks of the, the new covenant that God promised through the prophet Jeremiah, which we are experiencing, by the way. We are experiencing life in the new covenant that was given through the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 31, verse 33, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Him writing his word on our hearts. Now, I realize that this passage says, uh, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. But God is functioning in this, the same way with, with the church in that sense. Not that we've replaced Israel, no. It's not a replacement theology, but it's just that God's heart is such that this is what he does with his people. That's the idea behind this. So, so he, he puts his word in our hearts, writes his word on our hearts. We're his people. He is our God. And so we can say, we are yours we belong to you. You're my God. I'm your child. I, I, I'm your follower. I'm your disciple. I'm, I'm your servant. I belong to you. So save me. Save me. Um, in helplessness, we, can cry, we, we cry out to him uh, in that way. Seeking his precepts. For I have sought your precepts. I see what your word has to say about our relationship. And I am going to call out to you based on the truth of what that is. The wicked wail for me to destroy me, but I will consider your testimonies. We see a contrast there. The wicked are consumed with destroying me, David writes. But... I am consumed by your word. That's kind of what we see here, that kind of a contrast. And, and, and guys, isn't it true that the, word, the world is going to do all it can to keep us from God's word? And do all it can to destroy us. In fact, even like David writes, you know, my life nearly came to an end. Almost. Almost. But God is with us. He will watch over us and protect us. As I consider being consumed with God's word, I think of Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, which says this, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, Whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. Sometimes we spend time meditating on the wrong stuff. You know, we, we can uh, meditate on all kinds of things, the trouble that we have, the troubles in the world, meditate on the, on, on the news reports that we see, more, meditate on the sports page, meditate on the shoe catalog, I don't know, whatever it might be. But, you know, if we meditate on these things here in Philippians 4, I think this is a very important passage for us in regard to us really knowing God's 
these, these things we meditate on. And finally, the last verse, the consummation of all perfection. I've seen the consummation of all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. I've, I, I've looked at the perfection, the completion of your creation. Everything here, outside of you, God, everything here, all that you created, I look on that, it can be wonderful, it can be beautiful, Sometimes it can be horrible and it, it can be painful. But it's got its limitations. You, God, you are infinite. Your word covers it all, exceedingly broad. Your word covers everything about you that I need to understand and know and thus have that peace that you want to give to me, that peace that I want so desperately. It's all about God's word. His word and the excellencies of it, the life that comes from it, the protection that comes from it, the, the, the life-sustaining value of God's word, so incredible. Are you guys finding, yourself, finding that in your own heart you're growing to love word, God's word more and more and more? I hope so. I pray so. And I, I pray that going through this 119th Psalm is helping with that as well. And Father, I pray that you would have your way in our hearts. Lord, we sang that earlier, asking that you would have your way in us. And even now, God, we pray the same. And right now, Lord, we want to celebrate the truth of your love for us and the way that you express that love for us by giving us your son, Jesus. And Jesus, we just want to honor you tonight as we remember, as we partake of this, which we call the Lord's Supper, communion. Have your way with us, God, we pray. Do your work in us. And Lord, continue to mold us into the image of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.